in this episode with Dr. Stacy Sims. Yeah, especially um, my mom laughs at this one. I bring this up when I would wear her boots in my Wonder Woman underoos and run around the house going, you know, like emphasizing that I could do anything and be anything. And I didn't get the, oh, Stacy, you're just dressing. Stop doing it, you know, like a lot of parents might do if you're wishing things around and knocking things down. It was more laughter and, yeah, cool, great. So I got the encouragement to actually be expressive. Yeah. Um, so that was that was good. I don't think my parents actually realized how much that was a benefit to growing up. You see it now where people are like, oh, let your kids be expressive. But when you're thinking about late 70s, mm. not so much. Mm. People will see me if I'm concentrating in the lab, like I'll look at a plain blank board. And if you've ever seen the Queen's Gambit where she's mm. imagining the chess pieces moving, mm. Mm. that's how I think when I think about metabolism and how like glucose is broken up and how it gets into the cells and all those cellular processes. And that clicked when I was in metabolism. I was like, this makes sense, and I'm, I enjoy this. So that's how I got into exercise physiology. I don't think I've ever made conscious decisions. Right. I think I've just gotten opportunities, or one door shuts and another one opens. Okay. But as I'm going through and learning about things, the representation of being a woman wasn't in any of the textbooks. It wasn't in any of the history of sport. It wasn't in any of the classes. And so it was always this constant like undercurrent in my head of I'm pushing myself as hard as I can. My teammates are pushing themselves as hard as they can, but we're not represented in the scientific knowledge. And it never sat right. When we talk about like empowering women to get to know themselves, it's really telling women to step outside of the norm and to imagine what it would be like to be in a female environment where all the thought processes that a woman might have about her menstrual cycle or am I going crazy because uh, I suddenly snap and I'm 45. It's like, well, no, that's normal. That's perimenopause. So if you take a step back and you look at your life and go, how would it be different if all the things that I had learned had been through a female lens? It opens up perspective. And when people start realizing that everything they've learned, all the textbooks, the viewpoints, um, even the language that we use is all from that male perspective. And if we switch it and have that female perspective, it's a whole world that women can now open up into. And their male partners and sons and fathers can begin to understand the lived experiences of women. So that's, that's the essence of what I do, is I really want people to understand historical perspective and how we can change it.
Stacey, yeah. thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule and being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I'm excited, like I just said, to be out of the house and having a real conversation <laughs> with real people. <laughs> Excellent. So um, if I can, what I'd like to do is start by asking you a question related to the title of this show, Life's Work. Yeah. Can you describe for us what your life's work is? And that, that's not suggesting past tense, it's your current yeah. life, life's work. I'd say to really encompass it shortly is empowering women. Not from a feminist point of view, uh, because we know what's happened in the past, but it's like taking what we've learned in the past through patriarchal ideas, but actually learning from it and moving forward from it. So we're empowering women through the historical perspective, but also what can we do now? And usually for me, it's through exercise and nutrition and the motivation to feel better about yourself. Fantastic. Yeah. Great. Right. There was so much in there that I actually want to get to, which will be fantastic. Um, but before we do, what I like to do as well is ask our guests to look for a little bit of context of, of who you are. It's, this, is, this is about you and your work. So what I'd really like to do is ask you to tell us a little bit about your background, where, where you grew up, your kind of family context. Um, who were you as a, as a character, as a young person? <laughs> okay. No, that's fine. Um, so... I am the daughter of an army uh, officer. My parents had kind of that fairy tale, met at 14, started dating at 15, dated all through high school, all through university, got married, married until my father passed away of cancer. So we were a very tight household, uh, me, my mom, my sister, and my dad. And we kind of traveled around the world as a little military unit. I spent my formative childhood years in Europe and then landed in San Francisco for high school, and then had the, you're not going to university in California, you're gonna go to our home state in Indiana because we might be going back to Europe. So then I ended up in the middle of the country that I'd never been to before to do my undergraduate degree, and it was very eye-opening from San Francisco diversity, going to school, high school outside of Haight-Ashbury to the middle of the cornfields in Indiana. Um, and then from there, went and did a master's degree on the East Coast, and then I was working in San Francisco. Ended up coming to New Zealand in 98, 99, because I had been hosting some of the pro triathletes. And they're like, hey, Wellington looks just like San Francisco. So a job came up, and I applied, and I moved here on a whim. And I was like, yeah, I'm 25, single, no attachments, might as well. Yeah. Ended up staying and doing my PhD and then landed back in California at Stanford to um, do a postdoc and do some work and launched a few companies and then ended up back here in New Zealand. Wow. Yeah. So that was a very quick um, podcast. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm already joking. Um, can I go back a, a step to, to when you were a younger person? Um, you know, what kind of, before you moved back to Indiana, what kind of person were you? Say you grew up with your mom, dad, and your sister. Yeah. What kind of character were you? Uh, I was the youngest of two, and my sister was the one who was always making, um, I don't want to say trouble, but was the <laughs> more difficult of the two, mm -hmm. and I didn't want to replicate that so I could get away with more things. Uh, I was very, very quiet and shy. I didn't really come to my own until my sister went to university. I remember going to school, and they would call me Baby Shannon because I didn't speak, but they knew Shannon's name but not mine. Right. Um, 
And it was very intrinsic, lots of good imagination, writing stories outside, playing by myself, making all sorts of things up, like games and that kind of stuff. Um, reading a lot and just kind of uh, really observing the world. And then when she went to university is when I was in San Francisco doing or finishing up high school. And when she left, that's when I started really like getting involved in some of the outside ideas of what it meant to be in San Francisco City proper, um, going to high school there, looking at what was, I guess, equal and not equal. So when we're looking at, I ended up being a minority in my high school because I went to a college uh, prep school. And I was one of four Caucasians in the school. Everyone else was primarily Asian descent because it was college prep. And so everyone who comes in, they want their kids to have the best availability to get into school. So we had advanced placement classes, college prep classes, all that kind of stuff. So to go from being the majority and everybody thinking the same to all of a sudden experiencing what it meant to be a minority and not hearing English in the hallways and that kind of stuff really kind of set you back. Like, whoa, wait a second, now I see what it is like to live in a world where everything you think is the norm is not the norm. So that was really eye-opening. And so that kind of pushed me forward with regards to seeing outside opportunities and outside experiences, lived experiences. Um, and like I said, going to high school by Haight-Ashbury as well, where the hippie movement started in San Francisco. And so it's very alternative. So you have, on one hand, being a, a colonel's daughter and having all the things that go with being a colonel's daughter into being a minority in high school right next to the hippie movement, right? And so there was a lot of different viewpoints. And it was also the time when the first Kuwait invasion happened, and I ended up being the only person in high school. Everyone else went down to protest. And people asked me why I wasn't protesting. I was like, because then I'm protesting against my father, and I didn't want to do that. And everyone was kind of in a shock, kind of like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, well, it's a viewpoint, and I can see your viewpoint. I can also see my father's viewpoint, and I can see what's happening in the general aspect of things. And so it was really just the compassing high school experience that really kind of benchmarked how I started seeing things in the world, which then got me to the point where I'm like, women are not small men. And that's how I really got into the idea that we need to find equality. And when I got to university and there wasn't, that's when I was like, okay, why? Why, 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 why? If I see all this diversity and I've grown up in this diversity and I see the inequality mm. and it's very frustrating to see that inequality, I don't want that to be in the general population. We should have moved forward from here. Mm. We shouldn't have men on a pedestal and women as second class. Mm. Yeah, so a couple of key things there you said about different viewpoints and observing, I think you used the word observing. Yeah. So were you cognizant back then at high school that, that's, that you were ob observant and seeing different perspectives? So Definitely. that was very much a conscious thing for you. Yes, yes. Because I, um, I speak French. I learned when I was a kid and when we were in Europe. And so I really wanted to be a translator for the UN. And if you think about if you're working in the United Nations and being a translator, you have to be very cognizant of other people's cultural experiences. And I also understood that I was growing up in a different family household than a lot of my friends. Like My parents have been married forever. My father's in the Army. We have things that other people don't. Um, and we also don't have things that other people do. So I was very hyper aware of the differences, especially cultural differences. Um, 
And then going from that kind of in your face every day, there's something different and new to learn to boom, right in Indiana where everything's the same, same. It was very shocking that other people were still in this mentality of same sameness. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. I mean, did you feel kind of isolated because you had that kind of view of the world in, in, in the sense that not everyone has that perspective, do they? Yeah, I did. I felt, I felt like I had been dropped off in a completely different time, I guess. Felt like we'd been pushed back into the 1950s or 60s. And there were some innovative parts, but even going to some of the basic classes and still feeling like, hey, wait a second, there's so many cliques here. What am I back in, in kindergarten with the girls doing one thing and the boys doing another thing? So I was an outsider. I was an outsider for the fact that I came from California, and I was an outsider in the fact that I didn't grow up how most of the people in my um, class and dorm grew up. Um, and I kind of felt that way all the way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, sorry, before I come to the uni bit, I'm just yeah. going to get there very shortly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, so I think I either read or watched uh, a video that's about the research before this podcast um, that you, I think you kind of, I don't know whether you wanted to be, but you certainly idolised Wonder Woman and, and characters yes, like that. Definitely. Yeah. So as, as, a, as a young woman or yeah. a young girl... Did you have any idea about what you wanted to do in the world when, as you were growing up? Well, like I said, um, because we moved around a lot, it was just me and my sister, my mom and dad, and I had um, books and, um, you know, I had friends, but often you're dropped in somewhere and so you're still the outsider. Growing up is the outsider. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love superheroes, especially Wonder Woman and then also Princess Leia from right. Star Wars, yeah. right? Because they seem to not care what other people thought. And that was something that I was aware of, the fact that I did care what other people thought because I was shy, I was quiet. But I idolized them because they seemed to be able to break through hard situations and they were able to say what they meant and get fo- get pushed forward. Um, and that wasn't something I saw in other characters. A lot of the times it's like if you think... Um, like I Dream a Genie or Bewitched. It was very much, okay, these women have their own kind of magic, but they were still pigeonholed into what the man of the household wanted them to do. And I was like, wait, it's cool that they have these powers and they can be like really strong in the house, but yet they still have to bend to what is the social norms, whereas Princess Leia and Wonder Woman didn't, they didn't bend to those social norms. Mm. So did that kind of, you said you weren't like that because you were shy, mm-hmm. but that did that kind of give you empowerment to overcome that? Yeah, especially, um, and my mom laughs at this when I bring this up, when I would wear her boots and my Wonder Woman underoos and run around the house going, you know, like <laughs> emphasizing that I could do anything and be anything. And I didn't get the, oh, Stacy, you're just dressing, stop doing it, you know, like a lot of parents might do if you're, wishing things around and knocking things down. It was more laughter and, yeah, cool, great. So I got the encouragement to actually be expressive. Yeah. Um, so that was that was good. I don't think my parents actually realized how much that was a benefit to growing up. You see it now where people are like, oh, let your kids be expressive. But when you're thinking about late 70s, mm-hmm. not so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what, what did you want to do? Like, you know, before you went to university, do you have an idea of, what path you were wanting to follow. Oh, yeah, and um, I'm completely far removed from that idea. 
uh, I wanted to be, like I said, a translator for the UN, war chef. And war my chef. parents were like, right. no, you're not going to be a chef. I don't want that life for my daughter. Okay. You're going to go to university. And right. I'm like, okay, well, growing up military and political science and seeing conflict of war and that kind of stuff with the Kuwait invasion and all of these things that had come up in that time frame. It's like I want to be a translator so I can be in the mix and I can actually try to help. But then I got to university and fell asleep in every poli-sci class. I'm like, this is not for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so then what happened? What did, what did you study? Uh, one of my good friends and roommates, like, you know, we're studying metabolism and exercise physiology. And with your knowledge and interest in nutrition, you probably would like ex-phys. So I jumped into metabolism, which was a third-year class when I was a first-year. Right. I was like, this all makes sense. This makes sense. I can see the cellular processes. So... People will see me if I'm concentrating in the lab, like I'll look at a plain blank board. And if you've ever seen the Queen's Gambit where she's mm -hmm. imagining the chess pieces moving, mm -hmm. that's how I think when I think about metabolism and how like glucose is broken up and how it gets into the cells and all those cellular processes. And that clicked when I was in metabolism. I was like, this makes sense and I'm, I enjoy this. So that's how I got into exercise physiology. All right. Yeah. And sorry, just to make a connection there. So your friend said you're interested in nutrition. Was that the chef bit or where did your interest in nutrition stem? Um, so, you know, being in San Francisco, we had to do internships for high school and I started working for Friends of the River in um, people for ethical treatment of animals because it was just right down near our house. Um, and the whole idea of sustainable food growth and eating close to the source and that kind of stuff was very much the thing there. And I read um, Francis Lappe's book for A New Planet and John Robinson's book about um, being environmentally conscious. And so I became very interested in, I guess now it's trendy, you know, farm to table kind of thing. Um, and we took a field trip down the I-5, down near Hollister where all the feedlots are. And um, went to a pig slaughterhouse, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is just... So it was a whole bunch of things that happened, understanding where the food sources are from the States, which made me want to be a chef because I really enjoyed cooking, but I also wanted to promote the local sustainable for better health, really, because, you know, learning about sustainability, health for the planet, but also it's better for you because if you're eating that's stuff that's close to season and close to you, then you have better nutrients. And so all of that was kind of feed forwarding. Um, but my parents, like I said, were like, no, you can't be a chef. But I still had this huge interest in nutrition. So that's why my friend was like, hey, well, you're not a chef and you love nutrition. You should try metabolism. Yeah, I can see that. How did you feel about being told that you couldn't be a chef? How did you respond to that? Uh, I'm just trying to think of how my kids would have yeah. responded now if I'd, if I'd have told them, no, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had a lot of respect for my father, mm. and so when he's like, this is not the life for you, like, you're not going to get it, you'll be burnt out by the time you're 25, um, so listening to both of them and their viewpoint, and I was like, okay, if I want to do it, then I can always go back and do it later, but they're offering to pay for a four-year university degree, I might as well take them up for it, mm. because if chefing doesn't work out, then I'm by myself, but if I go get a university degree, then at least I have a fallback. Yeah. Is there also an element there of you, you know, your willingness, or, or not, not just willingness, but keenness to see things from others' perspective yeah. made you open to listening yeah. to your parents? Yeah. 
And I will have a bit of truth in the matter. I was afraid of my dad <laughs> like growing up because he's you know, military, very stern, come home, you see him in his uniform. Um, and it was that respect, but it was also a little bit of fear. Not that he was going to do anything mean, but it was just that a sternness kind of staunchness of a military father figure. Right. Um, so, yeah, if he's like, this is not a good idea. And then my quip back was, can I be a SEAL? And he's like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Now I okay. could, maybe, because they've opened <laughs> up Rangers and SEALs to women. But yeah, back yeah. then, no. No, no. Times have changed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Changing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're at university. Yeah. Um, where, where to from here? I know you kind of flashed through that quite early on, but if we can bit more detail what what after what happens after university what kind of decisions were you making at that point in time about where your life was going to lead you I don't think I've ever made conscious decisions right I think I've just gotten opportunities or one door shuts and another one opens okay. which is kind of how um, the end of Purdue getting into a master's degree happened I remember distinctly getting to my senior year and not really knowing what I was going to do um, in fact my Mother flew out from the East Coast to come to an awards uh, ceremony thing, and I got an award, I think, for, like, the best student in the department or something like that. And they're like, so what are you going to do? And I was like, mm, I'm going to go to San Francisco and hang out. <laughs> like, I had no idea. My mom was so embarrassed because other people were like, I got into this grad school, and I'm doing this and this. I really didn't have a career plan. Um, but I did apply to certain master's degrees because I was interested in really going after the injury part because as a female athlete and being on the crew team and being an athlete and being around athletes, whenever you were injured, the automatic response was you need to stop. And from an athlete mentality, that doesn't go over well. Like you can't just all of a sudden stop doing what you're doing and not have interaction with teammates, have different structure in your life and expect to keep moving forward and get better. So I wanted to go after that and see, are there other things that we can do to tell our athletes to be able to rehab and maintain those, those connections and still keep, kind of keep training but get healthy while they are training? Mm -hmm. So I went to Springfield College in Massachusetts. It's a small little um, college, which I guess is it's not quite a university because it's not big enough in the States, outside of Boston. Uh, and I started... Um, kind of in the athletic training and rehab and I was like I don't want to take ankles but I'm still very interested in exercise physiology in heat heat adaptations because there are things that we can do with heat that can promote healing so that was kind of the direction I took when I was in my master's degree and when you're in ex-phys there are other opportunities to you know, like you can work clinically you can work for teams so it was kind of got into master's degree, wasn't that excited about that kind of rehab, so then moved into ex-phys. Had a massive blow up there. It was the first time I actually was tested with my views. Um, our, uh, I guess, professor for thermoregulation, um, he was very, I guess it's the best way to say is he had a Napoleon complex where he's very rigid, and this is what I do, and this is what I say. You come in, and you do this, and you do this. And uh, I had my book open, and I was highlighting parts of the book as notes instead of writing them down. He came and slammed it shut. And this is the thing. If you did something that he didn't really like, he would take an action that was really off-putting. 
And uh, he was supposed to be my advising professor as well. And the turning point was we were in a thermoregulation lab where someone was in cold water, cold water immersion, looking at his responses, and he was late. And the postdoc was supposed to be running the lab. And he comes in and sees that the lab was behind, and he throws his keys across the room. And there are three of us with our heads down the book because we're like, oh, my gosh, he just threw his keys. And he came, and he grabbed my ponytail and pulled it back. And it's like, what the fuck is going on? And I was like, this is not right. This is not right. But I didn't know what to say. Um, and then I got called to the dean's office. And she's like, we heard there were some incidences. And I was like, no, 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 because I didn't know what to do. But then in my thesis proposal, he was being very pedantic. And it was with the dean and two others. And she called me aside after that proposal. And it's like, something is going on. What is going on? So then I said, these are the things that he's been doing. These are the things that are making all of us afraid to say anything. And then it came out, and there was an investigation, but it was me and my word versus everyone else because everyone else was afraid. And so then it was like, I've got to stand up, and I've got to put my foot forward, and I have to actually um, make a stand and say this isn't right. It is not right for someone to come in and treat their students like this. It is not right for him to say that he's the head of department when he is just part of the department. And then the way that evolved is he ended up getting um, repercussions and gotten, gotten fired and kicked out of the university. Um, but that was like the first time where I realized that it's much bigger than what you think. And if you stand up for what you believe, there's gonna be some really big pushback because it's outside of the norm. And it was, it was a bit terrifying trying to get through a degree and you're taking these steps against your advising professor and then having to have someone supervise test with you because he's in the room with you. Uh, so that was a big, huge learning curve of how to interact in a bigger environment when people are so opposed to some of your views, even though you know that what you are saying and what you're doing is the right thing to be doing. Takes courage to do what you do. Uh, yeah. What but did what did you were there things that you learned from that about yourself and other people that you've taken forward? Because uh, I mean, I, I think at your age that you would have been then that like you and you've just described it and said it it was a, it would have been a big thing. Yeah. Quite impactful. Yeah, and yeah. it was terrifying. Um, I think it taught me how far I can push and still hide that fear. Um, I remember feeling nauseous almost every morning having to go to classes wondering what I would encounter and then talking to friends who were actually in the same classes and they would talk to me and go, yeah, I really support you, but then in the out face they wouldn't. Um, so it was also understanding what can be said behind closed doors and what actually will be said. Uh, so it was, it was, I put it now as I look back, a really good learning point for business to understand how you can push for things within business and understand that what you think is going on might not be going on and how to navigate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot in what you just said there. I think it was sort of triggering things in my mind about, you know, in particular, I think feeling like you've got the support of your peers, but actually you, you haven't. And, and the reason is it's all about fear, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And it came back when I launched my first company. Um, I launched a company and we put the first women's specific product out on sport hydration. Not only was I putting a new product out that was low carbohydrate, but really 
entrenched in science about hydration, but I was also saying, hey, women need something different. And um, the comments that came from a lot of the men were so disturbing that I still get PTSD when I read comments. But it was like all the stuff that I experienced in my master's degree came back when I started that company. Not only from the interactions between our investor and the guy he put as a CEO and then me as R&D, and I was a new mom by one month. Like all of these things all come, came rushing back from that one experience in my master's degree. So that's why retrospectively I look back and go, okay, yeah, that was a very hard time, but I made it through and I learned some of the mm. feelings and steps mm. and things from that experience and knew how it came out. Not, And so my mom always is like, it's like Murphy's Law. You have five really hard steps to get to one good one. Whereas other people might have good steps and then they have good steps and then they have good steps and they never have bad steps. I was like, I guess that's how I became resilient because I don't ever expect things to go my way. And I think it might have stemmed from all of that that happened during my master's degree. Yeah. The, you know, the, the good step thing. Yeah. You know, you can have good steps in your comfort zone. Yep. That's, I think that's easy, isn't it? Absolutely. But if you've, if you've never had any kind of challenge, let's just loosely turn it that way, like you did in your life, you don't, that's out of your comfort zone, but you learned about yourself and you learned you could cope with it. Yes, you, you, like you said, you might have flashbacks to it, but maybe those flashbacks are useful because it's telling you you, you coped with it then and you can do this now. You know, some people might shy away from challenges because of the fear of not knowing how to deal with it. Whereas you in your business and your line of work, which we're going to get into more detail about, a um, bit of a trailblazer, if, if that's the right phrase. Yeah. Is, is that, would you agree with that? You that's know? what people tell me. Yeah. I just like, I see a problem, I keep pushing it. Yeah, yeah. Push, 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 push. Yeah. Maybe it's a fringe, but yeah. Yeah, anyway. but you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's like you, you've, you've, you could have had these thoughts and looked into things and scientifically had some proof to back up what your thoughts and theories were and not done anything with it through fear, which is what most people do. Yeah. I'm not saying anything controversial there. I think we're all, we all have fear in our lives. It stops us from doing all sorts of stuff. But, but you've overcome that. You've gone from the shy person that you were as a child to someone who's actually prepared to stand up and push for what's, what's right and what you believe in. Yeah. Doesn't mean I'm not afraid. No, no. no. <laughs> Just means that the idea of the outcome can supersede the fear. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, that was uh, a, a traumatic university experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and that was your degree, not your masters. Or it was your masters. Yeah, it was, my it was your masters, masters yeah. right? Okay. So then you got your masters. What? Where did you think you were going to head from there? What was? And I like the fact. Sorry, before I ask that question again. Um, I, it's a co bit of a common theme, I think, with guests and people who've been quite successful, you know, really successful. Interestingly, most of them haven't had a kind of defined path of that's what I'm going to be and I'm going to follow that all the way through. Some have, but a lot of them haven't. A lot of them have kind of just been prepared to go where and follow threads and, and see where it, where it takes them. Yeah. Yeah, my motivation after graduating from my master's degree was to get back to California because I loved San Francisco and I loved Santa Barbara and I really wanted to find a job out there. Um, 
So I took a job in Redding, California, which is the very northern part by Lassen Park and Shasta, in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of ranchers, um, working cardiovascular rehabilitation for a bunch of meat-eating old dudes, right? And they would get very frustrated when I'm trying to make them do exercise. Mm. Um, and then about a year into that, I was like, this is just not what I want to do. It's, it's not... It's not fulfilling, it's not changing, anything like that. So I quit and went to San Francisco and stayed with a friend and found a job there working for a surgeon in the city and running his um, clinic in uh, obesity surgery, which was kind of the fringe then, right? So no one really was doing obesity surgery then. Mm. Um, getting people to start exercising and changing their lifestyle after this massive surgery. Um, and so that was that was good because it was like you could actually see a, a differential change where someone wakes up in surgery and they're like, okay, now what? How do I start my life again? And mm -hmm. I was the point person to help them do that. Um, and then while I was doing that was when I hosted Cameron Brown and a couple other triathletes from New Zealand. And I was also an avid triathlete then as well. Um, and they're like, wow, this place is really much like Wellington. And the travel bug has always been with me. So that's why I was like, oh, I wonder if there are any jobs in Wellington. So that was, that was what brought you to New Zealand? Yeah, first time. Just, uh, I wonder if there's any jobs in Wellington. Yeah. I wonder if there's any jobs in Wellington. <laughs> oh, look, there is one right there. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And within three weeks, I had a visa and a job, and I remember going to my grandparents' 60th wedding anniversary, and everyone's like, so what are you doing in your life? I'm like, I'm moving to New Zealand next week. And everyone's like, what? <laughs> I was like, yeah. Just decided I'm just going to ditch everything. I've sold everything. I've sold the house, everything. I'm packed up. I'm leaving for New Zealand next week. And that didn't go over very well with my parents. My mom was like, oh, my gosh, you're moving to the bottom of the world. Yeah. yeah. Did, did moving around as a child kind of help with that, the ability to and, – and, you know, Indiana for university and back to San Francisco again, you were kind of on the move, so it was just another move. Yeah. And you, in your mind, anyway. Yeah. And the thing about it is um, I still have that, and I talked to my sister about it too. We've never put down roots because we always like, okay, this is temporary. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of military children feel that. Like it's really hard to feel settled anywhere. Um, so I'm always like, okay, where's the next move? Where's the next, where's the next opportunity? Where's the next move? Whereas my husband is sixth-generation family farm from Matamata. And he's like, what do you mean you want to move again? Mm -hmm. Like, no, we're here. We have. It. I'm like, but no, it's the same sameness. There's no opportunities. we got to keep moving forward. So there's a bit of that undercurrent. And so when an opportunity comes up and it's like, oh, you have to move here, I'm like, okay. I don't see a problem with it because it's an opportunity. It's um, expanding horizons. It's experiencing something new. Uh, but I realize that I might be alone in that at the moment. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so um, you moved here at 25. Yep. Wellington. Which is, again, is a big, a big challenge, isn't it? A big, a big move. For yeah. a, young, a young person to do by themselves. Yeah, I, I guess so. But at the time, I was like, oh, I'm going to go to a new place. Yeah. It'll be cool. English speaking, mm -hmm. still, you know, relatively similar culture. Find some friends. Here's a school job. It's in a city. And then I got off the plane in the howling southerly and went, what the hell did I do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So can I just t touch on, um, you, you've referenced it a couple of times, but you, you were an athlete yourself, right? Yeah. Which is... You know, an important point to, to make that um, the reasons why you probably started to focusing on where you're at today was as a result of being a 
female athlete yourself. Yes. So you were, yeah. you were a rower at university, is that right? And I you was, just mentioned triathlons? Yeah, so I started as a ballerina. And when I was 13, my uh, instructor was like, you need to choose between running and ballet. And I recommend running because I was getting too tall and uncoordinated, I guess, for mm -hmm. toe work. Um, and I was like, okay. So running and ran cross country all through high school. Had opportunity to walk on to the collegiate cross country team, but I was like, mm, don't really want to run anymore, but crew looks interesting. So that's how I got on the rowing team at Purdue. Uh, primarily because I met a lot of the rowers out running. <laughs> and I was like, oh, are you training for anything? Oh yeah, we're training for crew. And that introduced me to rowing. And that was the first real team sport that I'd been involved in, and it was incredibly different from being out there running and trying to get better as yourself, but you're trying to get better as yourself and your teammates. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Mm. And then that kind of was a trajectory because we'd have these other challenges within the team. Like I ran 20 marathons before I was 20 because I had teammates who were like, let's just go do this marathon the day after ahead of the Charles because we're there. I was like, oh, okay. We called it the Gamers Club. So I think there was a group of us that ended up doing 10 marathons in two years um, just because we could, right? Mm -hmm. And then when I got into my master's degree, got introduced to bike racing and triathlon and ultra running. And I was like, well, I don't have a bike. I don't want to swim in the cold water, so I'll start doing some more running and do some ultra running. Um, and then from there, it fed forward into doing triathlon and triathlon into Ironman and did Kona and one New Zealand Ironman age group and then ended up doing Xterra and in between those I was a professional bike racer so it's always been this undercurrent of athletic challenges. Let's see what the next step is. How can I get as far as I can in this sport? And then when I get as far as I can then I would get bored and change sports. Which I think kind of follows that whole theme of you move somewhere, you make new friends, do the new, new adventures and then oh it's time to move again. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you would have been looking at yourself I was just trying to sort of relate to that when I, when I was a lot younger, obviously, in sports myself. Me looking to get better at that was more of a skill set, whereas you were looking at fitness and, you know, the, the, the mechanics, if you like, of, of the physiology of the human body. Yeah, yeah. So can you talk to us a bit more about that and what, what led you down that path? What led me down that path? Yeah. Yeah, um, if I'd been a biomechanist, I think I would have been more skill-based. Um, because biomechanics is very much the lines and angles and math of the human body. But like I said, when I got into metabolism, I could see the cellular processes, just like the queen's gambit um, moving her chest pieces. Um, and so nutrition and the physiology was very interesting to understand what it felt like to be uh, at lactate threshold and feeling the burn as an athlete and then learning about it. But as I'm going through and learning about things, the representation of being a woman wasn't in any of the textbooks. It wasn't in any of the history of sport. It wasn't in any of the classes. And so it was always this constant like undercurrent in my head of I'm pushing myself as hard as I can. My teammates are pushing themselves as hard as they can, but we're not represented in the scientific knowledge. And it never sat right. Um, and I think that that's why I was like, okay, what's going on here? Like, we're training as hard as the men, but the men seem to be peaking at the right times, and we're not. And there are some times where, you know, 
some of my teammates will be like, I'm not on today because, you know, it's that time of the month. And the boys would never have that conversation. So it was just small little things throughout that was really planting a seed in my head of there's something not quite right here when we're working just as hard to get the same results, but we're not quite there. And then not having that representation in what we were learning in the classrooms. Hmm. So did you, what, what in your mind did you want to do about that at that point in time? Did you I wasn't sure. No? I wasn't sure. But I think one of the telling points, and I explained this in my TED Talk, um, was the Metabolism Lab in third year, where a lot of the other women that were in my degree in classes, they, weren't, they were in it to learn and then go on to be athletic trainers. They weren't in it as athletes, per se. So I'd be one of the only endurance athletes that would be fit enough to do some of the challenges. So I volunteered to do the two to two and a half hour run on the treadmill for the lab, one with water and one with carbohydrate. Um, and you had a familiarization. So there were three time points where you had to run for two to two and a half hours. I was the only woman and there were four guys doing the same thing. And um, when it came down to looking at the results, they threw some of my results out because they were the anomaly. They didn't match up with the men's. And I was like, wait a second, how come you're throwing my results out? I standardized exactly how we were supposed to standardize. I know that I did because I'm a military daughter. I follow instructions really well. Um, and there's nothing that I did that would have skewed those results. And so that really, really made me mad because I worked just as hard and did everything correctly, but yet my results were thrown out. And because they were, quote, an anomaly. So that's when I started really investigating, like, why would this be? And the only thing that was different was the phase of my menstrual cycle, of where I was. So one of the females, I was in low hormone phase. The water only, I was in low hormone phase. And then the carbohydrate, I was in high hormone phase. And so that makes a huge difference because when you're looking at carbohydrate metabolism between low and high hormone phases, the menstrual cycle, the body responds differently. The, what we call the respiratory quotient of how much fat versus carbohydrate you use is different between the phases. That's the only thing that was different between me and the men. And so that was like the telling point where I was like, hold on a second. So if this happened to me, how many of these scientific studies that we're reading either included women or didn't include women, and how many of those women's results were thrown out. So I was so mad at that time, but now retrospectively I can go back and say, hey, thank you, because now it really planted that seed to kind of push forward the rest of my career. So my master's degree, I looked at overtraining between men and women, trying to see are there differences in the expression of overtraining? Yes, there are. We look at immune differences between women and men. We look at... Um, we call profile mood states, where we see when men start to get overtrained or overreached, they get, become aggressive, they become um, more, uh, get some vigor, you know, so they're really like, oh, I gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. So it's more that um, aggressive and, and anxiety, but for women, it's a feeling of flatness, depression, um, and end fatigue. So completely different, even though they're going through the same kind of overtrained, overreached state, and the immune responses are different. So there are key things that happen there as well. And I didn't even look at menstrual cycle phase there. I noted it, but I did it all in low hormone phase because I wanted the women to be as similar from a metabolic perspective as the men. And I was like, okay, now here are more things that 
that we see that are different, but it's not being discussed. And this was, there was nowhere else that this was kind of, you could access research on this? Hadn't, no. Hadn't been done? No, not that I w could find. If you were to dig into a lot of the original seminal research, one, it's done on men, or two, they take women in the low hormone phase and mix their results in with the men. Even small things like your heart rate monitor, that everyone's like, oh, yeah, heart rate. The original algorithm of those heart rates and um, like monitoring the heart rate rhythm was based on five recreationally active 25-year-old men. But we know that the QRS signal, so the time between heartbeats and symptomology of the heartbeat is different. Women have a longer lag time. So if you're looking at um, heart rate and through the heart rate monitors, they're not, the algorithm isn't correct for women. But no one's ever questioned it. They were just like, oh, well, here's the original data. Here's the seminal data on heart rate and the way the heart rate rises during exercise. And then when you look at the original population, you're like, it's five, five dudes. Like, how does that even work for someone who's in their 50s, either women or men? Or how does that work for women who are, you know, in the reproductive ages? So it's that thought process that you go back retrospectively and you're looking. And at the time, looking at the research, I didn't see any represent representation of women. And what, sorry, what, at what time was this? What, what kind of what year years? Yeah. Don't even tell my age. <laughs> well, you know, approximately what? Yeah, no, mid-90s. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find that actually quite fascinating that we, that there was nothing, no research mm -mm. recognising the differences between men and women, even though that's, yeah. should be obvious, right? right? There's, there's a small, small body of research that came out of Natick. And Natick is in Massachusetts, and it's a military thermoregulation research unit. And Stevenson and Kolka are two women that were doing a lot of research, but they are looking at thermoregulatory differences in female soldiers. So looking at how women sweat and how they respond to fluid balance, either between phases or, or a contraceptive pill. But that was the only thing I could find. And I was like, well, at least someone's looking at hormone responses in women, but this isn't this doesn't have anything to do with metabolism, recovery, overtraining. So then I really started looking when I was doing my master's degree as well, like trying to find information on women, and there wasn't any. You could find some immunity stuff, but that was in the fertility work, that you could not find anything in sports science. So did this, was this what you were establishing as part of your PhD, or did this trigger you heading down that PhD pathway? I never thought I would do a PhD either. It's like mm -hmm. one of those things like you kind of fall into it. So when I moved to Wellington um, for the job, after two weeks, they closed one of the clinics and made me redundant. Wow. I was like, excuse me, what? Welcome to New Zealand. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> you, can't, you, you knew you were going to close the clinic and you recruited me to come yeah. over anyway. This doesn't make sense. So then I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm in a foreign country. I'm on a two-year work visa. And the job that I moved here for is no longer. Um, and at the time, Massey had come into Wellington and they were looking for a lecturer. So I interviewed for that and I got the lecturer position at Massey um, in Wellington. And so back in academia, and I'm like, oh, okay. So there's a lot of teaching and then wanting to teach things that I didn't learn was kind of on the fringe. So kind of got a hand slap. No, you can't do that. It's too difficult. You got to stick to this. And I was like, mm. If I really want to make a difference, I have to get a PhD. And so I was emailing 
back to UC Berkeley with George Brooks, who's like one of the iconic guys in exercise physiology. He's like the father of ex-phys. And I said, I want to do my PhD. Do I need to do it in the States or can I do it overseas? And he said, first and foremost, athletes and PhDs don't mix. And I was like, excuse me? I don't understand that. He's like, if you're going to keep being an athlete, then you can't get a PhD. I was like, why not? He's like, because the athlete mentality makes you too tired to actually focus. And so I was like, no, no, don't tell me I can't do something. So <laughs> then I was like, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to keep being an athlete because that's part of the driving factor here. Um, so do I need to get a PhD in the States, or can I get it overseas? And he's like, it doesn't matter as long as it's a high-quality university. I was like, okay, because here it's three years, research only. In the States, it ends up being eight years. And a lot of it is not really that conducive to getting a PhD. Uh, so then I applied to University of Otago and got accepted. And I was laughing that I went all the way to the bottom of the world to do some thermoregulation fluid balance work. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's how I ended up getting the push to do a PhD. It's interesting, again, though, isn't it, with, you know, throughout life, if you listen to certain people who, there's, there's always barriers. You know, that, that was an interesting one, wasn't it? You can't do a PhD because you're an athlete. Yeah. But yet your PhD was going to be on. Athletes. Yeah. Yeah. And I was really confused that he said that because he's like, like I said, he's like the godfather or the father of exercise physiology. And it's like, well, must have been, he must have had some really bad experiences with PhD students who were athletes in order to say that. Because in my viewpoint that if you are so tied to being an athlete and understanding what an athlete goes through and your research is reflecting that, then you have the opportunity to use the language and use the motivation to keep your participants going because you know what it feels like. Mm. And I've always made a point where I want to be the first person to go through a familiarization session in any of the studies that I do because I want to know exactly what everything feels like. So then when my participants come in, I can really commiserate with them or tell them where there are going to be some sticking points because I've been through it. So again, that perspective thing. Yeah, exactly. Viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so your PhD, um, talk us through that, what, what that was like. How, how were you, was it funded? Or how, how were you? Yeah, I got a scholarship down at University of Otago. Um, and it was started as a fluid balance project that my um, supervisor, Nancy Rear had thought about. And so she got a small grant funding to do some initial work. And I was looking at um, sodium loading. So when astronauts come down from being in space, they don't have the blood volume or blood pressure to be able to stand up. So what they do is they have to eat something like 3,000 milligrams of sodium in order to get enough salt in their body to create enough blood volume in order to stand up and have blood pressure. Right. So if we think about that in um, like blood volume and having plasma available for sweating and thermoregulation, especially if you're looking at going from New Zealand to the Northern Hemisphere to race in the Northern Hemisphere summer, it makes sense that you would be able to expand plasma volume, expand blood volume to handle that differences in heat. So that was the initial pilot work of looking at using this idea from NASA for blood volume expansion, but put it into the heat, and of course in men. And I was like, well, Okay, we know that this works in men, but we know that there are also a lot of fluid balance differences between menstrual cycle, between oral contraceptive pill and menstrual cycle. And I want to see if there are also differences between men and women. So that was the drive for the PhD, to really look at fluid loading, uh, cross-menstrual cycle, and that kind of stuff. And 
when I finished or was in the midst of finishing that first pilot study, I went to Kona to race Ironman. And we did a whole bunch of heat acclimatization to get ready to go race in Kona. And the only two of us that had issues with hyponatremia, so that means that we end up with low blood sodium on the course, was me and another woman who was in the high hormone phase of the menstrual cycle. Everyone else was sweet. So I was like, oh, wait, there's something here there. And that's when I came back and I was like, okay, now we look at fluid balance and heat. And we see that women's plasma sodium drops in the high hormone phase. So people can experience hyponatremia if they're in the high hormone phase and they're not taking care of it. So then that was a pigeon point of, okay, let's look at this in, in the lab and see what we can do to help people with that. Mm. Yeah. So, again, constantly kind of reflecting on your own performance. Yeah. And the effects on that, the influences on that. Yep, and how to help people not experience that again. Yeah, yeah. So what, so what have you – where to from there? What did you do with that, um, with your PhD? What, what was – because like we said before – this was not stuff that was already out there. Mm -hmm. um, you would be kind of pushing a different perspective into um, a, a world kind of based on research that was based on five, ma five yeah, young five males. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a challenge there, isn't there? So you've got a PhD, you've discovered something, which yeah. is fantastic, but then so what? What are you going to do with it? I uh, know. Uh, well, even during my PhD, I would get questions of why you're studying women. We don't know enough about men. Why didn't you expand the study and look at men? And I was like, because I'm a woman and I went to Kona and I had problems with it. So that's why we're looking at this. And educating almost everyone in the department that there are sex differences. And everyone should be looking at the sex differences in their studies. So I became that PhD student. And everyone's <laughs> proposal that, like, we don't want Stacey there because they're going to ask, where are the women? Um, but really trying to make that stand, again, not as a feminist, but going, hey, historically, all this stuff has been done in men, and we now need to move forward because there are so many female athletes, and there are a lot of women who are having issues that we could probably solve if we looked into it. Um, and so when I got to the end of my PhD, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do. I uh, got married like two weeks after I finished my PhD, and then um, got recruited for a job at Stanford. And I was like, oh, California, Stanford, okay, I'll go. I'll go work. That sounds cool. Um, and then, you know, how I said earlier, uh, five negative steps backwards to get into one good step. Yeah, so I got to Stanford to be the exercise physiologist in the human performance lab. Um, and after two weeks knew that I was hired as a scapegoat because there were a lot of things that were going wrong in the lab and they didn't have anyone to blame. And the person that was in charge of the lab um, he was very misogynistic, and he was looking at, you know, how is he going to um, be able to explain a lot of the things that were going on, and uh, he blamed it on a new girl. And, you know, when I look at all of this, I'm like, people will probably hear me explain the story and be like, no, it's really her, something's wrong with her, she's had all these experiences. But again, it was like a lot of people within the department were coming up saying, yeah, we know what's going on, and we know that they're blaming you, but we can't say anything because our job is tied to it. So again, it was like experiencing the same thing in the experience at Springfield College, but on a bigger scale, because here I am at Stanford. Like, who's going to believe the new girl comes from New Zealand, fresh out of a PhD, versus the head of orthopedics at Stanford? Um, so I had to find a way to get out of that and really like not be uh, scarred from it, I guess, is the best way. 
and so I met Marcia Stefanik, who is, was the primary investigator of the Women's Health Initiative, which was the big, massive hormone replacement study in the States. And she was looking for a postdoc. And we got along great. She was very much in the whole idea of we need to do more research on women and wanted to encourage that. And also Craig Heller, who was the head of um, human biology, and he was into thermoregulation research for athletes. So I had the opportunity to mix public health and human performance in a postdoc. So then taking the concepts of thermoregulation, of cooling and heat acclimatization for just a general population to get fit in order to, to be able to continue into a fitness program. So we called it the pre-fitness fitness, as well as understand hot flashes and vasomotor symptoms. So there's a lot of things that came together where I'm like, oh, this is fantastic because now there's something bigger I can get involved in that's not so pigeonholed into sports science. And people are actually interested in studying women. Um, so that's how I kind of landed on my feet at Stanford, taken under Marsha and Craig's wing and did a lot of really cool projects and then evolved into a clinical research scientist there. Um, and then at the same time, uh, taking some of the ideas of my PhD with fluid balance and regulation, and the Stanford football team was having issues with hydration, and Craig Heller from Human Biology was like, hey, you know about fluid balance, let's talk to the football team. I was like, all you have to do is mix up sodium citrate and bicarb and have a fluid load. And they did that, and then I got in trouble because it wasn't a product, and they weren't allowed to have things that weren't products. So then I got a hold of Cliff Bar, and people know Cliff Bars here as a, like the little um, protein bars that come mm. from the States. And they're like, yeah, we're really interested in developing a, a sport nutrition line, especially fluids, so let's make something for the football players. So again, it was the opportunity from something that happened, of like, I'm just trying to help, to all of a sudden being able to work with the company and create something. Um, and then on the other current of that, I was racing bikes professionally. So I was in with the Peloton, and they heard about the secret mix, and they wanted more. And then I ended up connecting with uh, the sports scientists of Garmin Slipstream and going over and doing some work with them in Girona, leading up to the Tour de France, helping them with the Tour de France. And then we created a drink line there. And um, it got to a point where one of my uh, clients, who was a VC and owned a Porsche factory racing team, um, was like, you know, let's get you out of that thing with Alan and let's try to do your own thing. And I was like, I'm six months pregnant. He's like, it doesn't matter. Let's do this. So I have all this stuff at Stanford that's going on and then the undercurrent of being an athlete, then working with athletes and creating things. And so it was like this big, massive amount of stuff that was going on all at the same time that all circled back to trying to help people get better at what they were doing. I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. I'm really pleased to announce that we have Sharp New Zealand as a sponsor. And it's great to have Sharp on board because as a customer, I can speak about their products and services from personal experience. And it feels good to be able to endorse and recommend a company because of the level of satisfaction we have regarding the services they provide. And across my businesses, we've certainly been impressed with the care and collaboration we've experienced in our dealings with Sharp. It's certainly a brand that we trust. Sharp has a long history of creating breakthrough products designed to meet the needs of people living in New Zealand. Sharp's leadership in technology innovation ensures it's at the forefront of the pack, providing business solutions from printing and photocopying to interactive meeting solutions and ICT phone systems. No matter where you are or what size your organization, whether you're large or small, 
Sharp New Zealand can provide their services to you nationwide. If you're looking to upgrade your technology or renew your photocopier leases, talk to your local Sharp team or visit the website at sharp.net.nz. Yeah, so there's a few things in there. I, I mean, again, the, the experience that you had when you first went and got the job at Stanford. Yeah. Um, we won't, don't need to go into too much about that. Clearly, clearly what you said, that wasn't um, that flash. And, and you know, my, my sort of take on that is you're, you're going to get some of that stuff if you're willing to put yourself out there and do different things. You know, again, stay in your comfort zone. You're probably not, not going to experience that. But stepping out of it, it's going to happen from time to time. But, you know, from that crappy experience came something good, didn't it? Yeah. I remember when I tendered my resignation at the Human Performance Lab and the orthopedic guy was like, Stacy, do you know what your problem is? And I said, no, what is it, Gordon? He goes, you're a woman with a PhD who thinks too much. And I was like, I'm just not going to respond to that because that is exactly the problem here where you didn't like to be threatened by someone who, and there's more than just me, threatened by someone who thinks innovatively or thinks outside of the box. Yeah, see, I... I I hear things like that, and I, and I, I don't think you know, that's a misogynistic thing. I think it's just an idiotic thing to say. It's just, it's a, you know, who, who in the right mind would come out with something like that? Oh, people at Stanford. But, but you know, <laughs> what, what drives that? What, you know, where, where's, where yeah. does that stuff come from? Uh, um, working, when I was at Stanford, I also was guest lecturing at um, one of the state universities because a friend was heading up um, the exhibits department there and I'd come in and do some fluid balance and stuff. And the difference between the students and the personnel night and day. So when you have these elite universities like Stanford and Harvard and all the Ivy Leagues, there is a certain um, ego that goes with it. And when you get ten tenure, the ego just explodes. So they're like, the mentality across the board is, I am at an elite level, no one can question me. Whereas if you look at the state schools, people are paying to be there, and they're paying to learn, and they want to know. And so they ask questions all the time to get the information to know. And so the people who are teaching are very genuous with their time and very open to conversations and learning from the students as well. So it's completely different I guess from a status point of view. So I wasn't surprised of a lot of the things that I heard when I was at Stanford, of like at Grand Rounds being told I wasn't a real doctor because I didn't have an MD, I just had a PhD. Or you're a woman with a PhD that thinks too much. Because those things would roll off the tongue and it had to do more with the status and the ego rather than thinking. And so it's just kind of like we have these silos and people talk about the silos and you can absolutely see it. And the more kudos there is in a university, the more that you will see this, mm. which is one of the reasons I wanted to get out of academia because mm. if you have to go through that and the red tape to try to get anything done, it's almost impossible. Mm. It's fascinating, isn't it? Idiotic behavior aside, it's like if the people who are responsible for teaching others yeah. and the learning of others close to learning themselves. What does that say about their teaching ability? I know. And the institution they work for, maybe. Oh, you know, yeah. Who's employed them. Yeah. Not just employed them, but retained them. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, doesn't either monitor it or 
about their behavior and their attitude or they do and ignore it. Yeah, we could have an entirely different podcast on the inner workings of universities. That's oh. for sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, episode two then. We'll episode two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm, I'm conscious of, of, of time and how long I'm keeping you, but um, this is fascinating stuff. So if we can then, maybe I can ask a question about what you've learned and what you do in your, your business, um, drstacysims.com. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and you, you're obviously involved in a whole raft of different things. Your TED Talk was um, fascinating, by the way, brilliant. Thanks. Really enjoyed that. Um, you know, the book, Raw. Uh, you, you've done so, much, so many things. Um, what's the essence, if I was to ask, what, what is it that people need to understand? about um, you know what, what you've learned and what you teach that would that could make a difference to people's lives who've maybe never met you or heard of your work before what is it that you know if, if you could give us a bit of a summary of what is it that people need to know because I imagine sorry there's not just yeah, no. men like me who yeah, yeah. who are fascinated and interested in, in understanding um, different perspective because I'm, I'm married and I've got two daughters mm-hmm. um, but I, I imagine there's a decent size of the population of, of women who don't know what they probably need to know about themselves right as well. yeah so the way I try to ex- describe it is everything that we know from biomedical sciences even even through marketing and some of the other aspects of business it's all through a male lens we look at AI and AI coming out and the databases that the AI is learning from. They're databases on primarily cis men. So when we look at how that can affect women, how that can affect people who don't identify as a cis man, then there is definitely a, a lower tier that they are sitting on. If we were to move it and say, if everything had originated from a female lens, from a female environment, then we would be looking at the fact that menstrual cycle, menstrual cycle issues, puberty, perimenopause, menopause would just be normal parts of conversation, be normal parts of scientific design. There would be a massive amount of health help for these situations instead of being a tabooness because it would just be part of normalized society. And the men might have more of issues because it hasn't been a cis male view. So again, it's a historical perspective. So when we talk about like empowering women to get to know themselves, it's really telling women to step outside of the norm and to imagine what it'd be like to be in a female environment where all the thought processes that a woman might have about her menstrual cycle or am I going crazy because uh, I suddenly snap and I'm 45. It's like, well, no, that's normal. That's perimenopause. So if you take a step back and you look at your life and go, how would it be different if all the things that I had learned had been through a female lens? It opens up perspective. And when people start realizing that everything they've learned, all the textbooks, the viewpoints, um, even the language that we use is all from that male perspective. And if we switch it and have that female perspective, it's a whole world that women can now open up into. And their male partners and sons and fathers can begin to understand the lived experiences of women. So that's that's the essence of what I do, is I really want people to understand historical perspective and how we can change it. 
And if we're stepping into um, like a leadership position, right? And we look at the language that's being used to motivate our women versus motivate our men. There are nuances in the language that we use where women don't respond well to negative than positive. Like as soon as you say a negative um, aspect towards a woman, hackles go up. They're like, oh, what did I do wrong? Because that's just the way that we have been conditioned to think primarily through the patriarchal lens, not for the fact that that's an ingrained biological response, but it's always been that's how we respond. Um, as a side note, my 10-year-old is just finishing watching 9 to 5, 1980s movie, and you watch it now, and you're like, oh my gosh, how is he able to call them girls and do all of these things? But that was the norm in the 80s. No one questioned it. Mm -hmm. So when you start thinking about that kind of language, which might still exist in workplaces, in sports, sport culture, um, we talk about it, the toxic environment, it's very endemic from language and that perspective. So we start changing that and have women understand who they are and their lived experiences, have coaches and managers and other people around them, even VCs who are putting money into new startups, understanding what motivates women, how women respond, then it levels the playing field and we really boost the capacity and the potential of women and we're not downgrading men. I think this is the big sticking point because people will say, oh, well, you're trying to elevate women at the disgrace of men. I'm not, and a lot of us are not. We're trying to elevate women, bring men involved in the conversation so we can elevate women and elevate men at the same time to get more performance potential out of both sexes. Lots of questions, again. Um, that elevation and, well, I can't remember the term you used now, but basically, you know, at the, at the expense of men. Is that, is there some of that that does happen? You know, like trying to put men down in order to elevate women. And, and does that create a little bit of a pushback and a fear amongst men that results in them being less open to learning about this stuff? Just in your opinion. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so I was in Dubai last weekend, and I laugh. I'm like, who goes to Dubai for the weekend from New Zealand? Oh, I do, uh, for a sports medicine <laughs> conference. And I'm presenting stuff on wearables because those are the new things. Everyone yeah. has some uh, Apple smartwatch or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. And talking about how the algorithms aren't meant for women's physiology. And halfway through, I look at the audience, and I can see the hackles are up on a lot of the men. So I purposely said, I am not talking from a feminist point of view. I'm talking from a historical point of view. And we know historically, like I've said in this podcast, historically, medicine originated from men saying women weren't as smart, so they shouldn't be in it. And so it originated from the male domination in society. We know this, but we can look at the historical past and we can move forward from that. And men need to be involved in the conversation. And as soon as I said that, it was like this huge relief and then people started listening again. Mm -hmm. And I think it stems from the 60s and the feminist movement. If we think about that, and women were always women, 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 women's lib, women this, women that, um, then men felt really like pushed aside and got angry. And so there was this big fight between what was right for women versus what was right for men. Um, and then the conversation really started escalating into women's rights and that kind of stuff. But as soon as it was being explained that women's rights just meant having more equality not trying to push men down, men join the conversation. And we still have that now, where we look historically, and when we start pushing for women and the female environment, then men, for the most part, 
retrospectively think about the feminist movement and that they're overt feminism and they're gonna lose some kind of status, but that's not the case. So again, it's that education. As soon as we start educating and talking about it, hey, you need to be involved in the conversation too. You have a mom, you might have a sister, you have a wife, you have daughters. All of this is important. It's important for the growth of society to empower and better the entire living environment, be it biomedical sciences, all the way down to your little girl who's playing soccer and has a male coach. When she goes through puberty, you want that male coach to understand that she needs to be retaught how to run so she doesn't get injured and doesn't want to drop out of sport. So, yeah. Yeah, couldn't agree more. It's like you talk about my daughter, actually. She's just going through puberty and she's just uh, taking up football and has a male coach. There you go. <laughs> Same with my daughter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I've got... Uh, I, Grace, my youngest, my eldest is an athlete, um, as we've discussed before, and my wife's going through menopause. So you got it from all sides. I, I've got all of it going on, and um, which which is great. You know, it's it's just it's it is life. It's part of life, and I'm one of these people. I, I like to. I'm curious. Mm -hmm. I've always kind of wanted to delve into things, possibly too much. You know. Um, Me too. Overthinking things, <laughs> but but I, I you know I want to understand. I want to understand so that I can not necessarily help them because that's not helpful. Right. Um, but I, I don't want to be um, detrimental in any way. Um, and I want to be, you know, be there to help if, if needed. But I want to be understanding. I think that's the main thing. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, additionally, um, as a business owner and, and in the work that I do, working with organisations and leaders in, you know, all sorts of, organizations from across public and private sectors what's what's concerning me at the minute is what i'm seeing and hearing about maybe because of the work that i do but also maybe i'm more um, sensitive to it because of what my wife's going through mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm reading um working my way through menopausing oh yeah um davina mccall mm -hmm. um and again to try and understand and it's what's what's fascinated me is that my wife doesn't even understand what's happening to her. Right. And the things that she's experiencing would never have related that to the menopause. Right. She knows she's going through menopause, but there are things happening that she would not relate to the menopause. Exactly. And it's like, actually, well, if, if you don't know and understand it, how the hell am I supposed to? Right. <laughs> so, and it leads to a little bit of, it has done, um, a little bit of tension, mm -hmm. a little bit of friction. Um, a lack of understanding does that at home, mm -hmm. but I think it also does it in the workplace. Yep. And so what I've, what, you know, what I'm experiencing, um, you know, working with in, in coaching capacity with leaders is, I'm getting a sense from them that they they don't understand some of the, the women that they work with. Um, they think it's kind of odd behaviour, and what's concerning is where that those conversations are going and what they think that they need to do is actually that that person shouldn't probably be in the team any longer. Yeah. And that, that concerns me a lot. And it's all about misunderstanding or lack of understanding, should I say. Um, and I think to myself, what's really, I think, brought to the fore is that lack of it, my wife they're talking about. Yep. I have a friend who had really bad um, mood issues going through menopause uh, to the point where it cost her her career and her marriage. And no one was able to tell her, hey, you know, this is temporary because you're going through menopause and there are things that we can do to help. Yeah. Because now menopause, although it's making its way into like popular media, people still t t treat it as a taboo. 
Like we see there's more open conversation about the menstrual cycle, but that's really only come into being the past four or five years. Mm. And those are sports people talking about it like mm. at high level sport. We talk about menopause. If a woman's experiencing a lot of these issues with mood, can't sleep, irritability, weight gain, they go to their physician and they're told, oh, it's because you're 40 some years old, you're very stressed out, mm. um, it's just part of life. I think here they call it, quote, the rushing woman syndrome, right? And they don't really dig in. Or they say, here's an SSRI for your mood. Let's take this serotonin reuptake inhibitor um, to help with anxiety, which doesn't do anything. Well, it might help with mood, but it doesn't actually address the problem. Because when we're seeing, if we think back to puberty, where we, we're seeing our girls go through this now, right? And we see mood changes and we see body comp changes. Well, we're on the other end of it. And when you have these hormone fluctuations that drop, we see every system of the body is affected. But if we don't have that conversation to say, hey, you know, women don't age in a linear fashion like men. Or men will age more linearly. They might have a drop-off of testosterone when they're in their late 60s, start to lose some muscle mass. But for women, that happens in their 40s. And it's an immediate boom right away. Well, right? sooner, I, I learned from reading about it. Yeah, it's 35 to 50 is the range. And no one mm -hmm. really knows. We start mm -hmm. to see evidence in their late 30s where hormones, the ratios start to change. So we start to see changes in mood, cognition, concentration, um, proprioception, and body comp. But it can last for years. And again, you go to the general practitioner and they're trying to test for iron for fatigue or they're looking at hormone levels, but it's a one point in time, so they can't actually get a really good picture. So the woman is told that she's normal and goes through and it's like, but this isn't normal, what's going on? And we're not having the conversations that all of these signs and symptoms indicate that your hormones are changing in the ratios and it's affecting every system of the body. When we bring that into the workplace, the UK is having this conversation now about menopause leave, where I totally don't agree with it. I think that women should have help with menopause, but I don't think we should put a stigma on it and say, mm -hmm. you need menopause leave. You need to leave. You need to take time off. Mm -hmm. I think it should just be, here's some extra medical days that any woman and man can have within the company. So there isn't a stigma about it. When we start talking about it in the C-suite areas, right? When, we see some women are up there and other women drop out of their career before they get there because they're having such issues with mood and concentration and decision-making because of menopause. Understanding that when women get to that point in their career, again, the motivation conversation has to change and the demands need to change a little bit. Um, and it's not being the pushback because of menopause, but actually being understanding that there are some health issues going on. The same as if a guy was to come in and he's part of the C-suite conversation and he might be having a lower testosterone level and doesn't want to openly say that, but you can see there are changes in cognition and there's changes in behavior. No one's going to call him out on it. And he's like, oh, I have a health issue. You're like, okay. So for women who are having these issues and they don't want to talk about it, they can be like, hey, I'm having some health issues. I know it may look like it's affecting my work performance, but just bear with me and it's going to be fine. But we need to have those open conversations. We don't have to be overt and say, hey, hey, I'm in perimenopause and my hormones are going all over the show and I can be a righteous some days and I can be okay other days. Just, you know, it's the trend. Let's look at the trend over time and really give some leeway in that time period. But also men who are in the peak of their career, they're under a lot of stress too. So then we, we pigeonhole it just to women and saying, hey, women are going through all this and their moods are changing and their cognition and their decision-making isn't the same as it used to be. It could just be stress. If she was a man, it would be stress. So we need to compensate for that. 
Yeah. The mental health aspect that's come up so much for yeah. female athletes and athletes in general now also needs to be applied when you get to the upper echelons of people's career. Because mm. the mental health thing is huge not only for women but for men too. There's a lot of connections going off in my mind. Um, you know, a lot of things come together. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, a little bit like the mental health side of things, we're talking about it a lot more, which is fantastic. It's great. We're a lot more open. Um, and but the doing's not happening. I'm just going to say that. Yeah. yeah. I, th that's the thing for me is like we're we're talking about the symptoms. We're talking about the the outcomes of it. We're not really looking at prevention. Right. Um, in my view, right. Um, but also we don't know what to do about it. We don't know how to approach it. And I think, again, I'm just offering my, my perspective on things. I think that menopause is the same, and perimenopause. It's, sometimes the women don't even know they're going through it themselves. Right. Um, so if they, don't, if they don't know about it, it's very hard to have a, a conversation about what support do you need. Right. Um, they might know about it, but there's a stigma attached to it and they don't want to admit it publicly or go around shouting about it like you described. So again, the barrier to actually changing the situation in the workplace and the, and the dynamics of relationships and performance and everything else, um, that's, that's a barrier. It's a huge barrier. How do we overcome those barriers? Um, it's a, you know, probably a billion dollar question. Yeah. How do we overcome those barriers? And, and what can we do? You know, like, so from a leadership point of view, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a, a male or female leader, if you've got, and again, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about men or women, you, you're quite right. There, there are issues for both men and women. Mm -hmm. um, but if you've got staff, you've got people who you work with, and I talk about this a lot with um, with other guests and, and every day in business, I talked about it with Nick Gill last week, mm -hmm. about the need to understand individuals and see them as individuals so that we can understand what their individual needs are is paramount for us to have a to in, enhance the working experience because it's so poor globally yes 70 percent of yeah. people are disengaged at work yes you know how do we start to turn that around well for me it's the experience of being at work we need to look at and so if we don't understand individuals how the hell can we provide for them individually within the context of a team. And so, and if we, if we don't know what's going on for them, either because they don't know themselves or they know but they don't want to talk about it because of the stigma, yep. and mental health is exactly the same, or it, you know. Well, we're really struggling, aren't we, to, to kind of... Find the balance and get things Find right. the balance, yeah. remove those barriers and work out how to create a better workplace for everyone. Yeah. And it is hard because socio, from a sociocultural standpoint, menopause means old. If you look mm. at like TV shows and sitcoms, yeah. the women, you look at Courtney Cox from Friends to Now, she looks almost the same from a body perspective, like her body composition and she's had a lot of work done so she doesn't look old and wrinkly. But you look at um, some of the male characters from Friends to Now mm. and they've been allowed to get old and it's okay. They mm. can wear dowdy shirts and they can look uh, distinguished. Same with um, some of the uh, other movie stars that are out there. Like the women, they can't age. And they start talking about menopause and all of a sudden they're an old actress and they lose um, job opportunities. 
but it doesn't happen the same with men. Like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, right? He always has a 20-year-old in there or a 30-year-old, mm -hmm. even though he's now close to 60. So it's that sociocultural thing that's attached with menopause and the word menopause that means, oh, now you're old and you're going to um, you know, be crotchety and be an old lady. So if we can find other words to use to empower women to talk about mental health or talk about what they're going through, to reduce the stigma from the sociocultural thing is one thing. But what that word is, I don't know yet. No. You say there about you being crotchety and an old lady. You know, maybe it's because we're acting that way without realising what's causing that. Yep, absolutely. You know, like some of the symptoms that I've read about, there's so many of them as well. That's, that's what I've come to learn is there are so many different symptoms that, that could be attributed to menopause. And we see that and we just associate age. And, and we, so we think that's normal, but yep. we can do something about it. Yeah. Or, you know. Yeah, so if we can take it back to a sport contest, yeah. right, and we look at coaching and we look at the age of athletes and we see that female athletes, when they get into their mid-30s, kill it in endurance. But a lot of times they lose their sponsorship because they're a, quote, old athlete as compared to the young ones coming in. If they have the opportunity to be like, you know what, I can still dominate. And it's the mentality of I can still dominate that becomes the um, conversation. So if we can empower women to think that way and say, oh, well, everyone else thinks I'm old and washed up, but I can still dominate. I can still do things within the confines of how I've changed to dominate, hit these deadlines, empower people who are under me. And I don't think anyone has that conversation in the workplace. Mm. They just look at all the negative things that are going on. And again, the language that used around that, that negative um, behavior or the negative connotations that are coming out perpetuates the negativity. Mm. Whereas if we can change it again and push it to, we can dominate, we can hit these deadlines, there's lots of empowerment around here within the confines of what we're doing and have some of those opportunities then we see more empowerment. We see it in the sports space. We see it in the coaching space. We see a lot of athletes who have gone from dominating as an athlete to dominating as a coach because they feel empowered. And it's finding how are we empowering our women who are in the crest of their career, who are at the, the top levels. How are we empowering them? And I think, we again, we have to look through that female lens. Like, what words are we using? What kind of um, workshops or things can we have for women and the men too so they can understand how we empower each other and it comes back to the empowerment and taking the negativity out because um, that's what works in the upper echelons of the aging athlete into coach and I see that um, a lot of women who have taken my courses or have adopted the ideas of lifting heavy and feeling empowered that way bring it into their life and they have better relationships with their kids they have better relationships with their husband and they have better workplace relationships. So it's finding some kind of way of empowering women either through physical strength or mental strength that's all about the positive and what they can bring to the table rather than saying, you used to do this, why are you not doing that now? Yeah, completely agree with everything you just said. The thing that springs to mind for me though is, is, is awareness. Yeah. So if we don't know or understand ourselves and what's going on for us, we're not Physiologically, we're going to feel the way that we're feeling and the symptoms are making us feel a certain way. It's very hard to just say, I'm going to be, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that, I'm going to be Wonder Woman, right? Yeah. When you don't feel like Right, you Wonder absolutely Woman. don't feel that way, right. So for me, it seems like, and I, and I 
thought about this when I was reading about menopause. I just can't, I can't understand or believe that this is not kind of mainstream, if that's the right word, that we're not... Oh, yeah, I'm with you. ...teaching this um, at, at schools, you know, or wherever we need to teach it. How do we raise awareness so that half the population, I think probably more than half the population, understand themselves better first so yep. that they can help the rest of us yep. <laughs> um, understand them too? And there's a massive gap there. I, I'm sure, like you said, the people who you work with you know, um, ha have some significant changes in their lives. after Because they understand what's going because on. Because of the yeah. understanding. Yep. Then they can make choices based on that understanding. Yep. But the gap is... How do we get there? How do we get raise awareness so people start to even question, actually, is, what's, is the way I'm feeling necessary? Right. You know? What's yeah. going on for me and finding out more? And like you said, I think you touched on it and I've had conversations about this um, before as well, is that the places that they would ordinarily go to get advice are not necessarily going to give them the right advice. So Correct. GPs. Correct. Um, you know, you get some great ones. Um, I've got a great GP interviewed him on, on here and he speaks very highly of you, um, oh. by the way. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are, there are lots of them who, who are... Oh, not great. And you've, I think you mentioned that earlier, touched on, you know, you get the, the wrong advice, oh, it's just, it's an age thing, mm -hmm. or it's this thing, or it's that thing. Oh, here, just take that. Yep. We're not, they don't even understand fully the symptoms that can be attributed to, to, to this. So, you know, how do we, A, do we, how do we raise awareness? And B, what, if you've got awareness, what should you do next? Where should you go for advice? Yeah. I um, did a small project with Nike Europe. And we did a takeover in the buildings where in the bathrooms, we, uh, re on the inside door, we um, reskinned the doors with information. We're like talking about your period is a taboo, menopause is a taboo. And when you close the door and you see this, you're like, what? And then there's a QR code and you can scan it and you get all this information. Mm. So we did a takeover for about a month. And now everyone is talking about menopause and perimenopause and periods. So it's a way of silently kind of going, hey, as a corporation, we know that this is a problem or an issue. We don't want to point it out, but we're going to start to open the conversation by skinning these doors in both the male, female, and gender-neutral bathrooms. And we'd have a blanket statement of, your period is an ergogenic aid. Uh, lifting heavy or lifting heavy shit during perimenopause empowers you. Just one short blanket statement, and then go to the QR code for more information. Mm. That was really powerful, but I don't think every corporation is going to be able to do that. But I think that within the workplace, there has to be some kind of acknowledgement from the management's point of view that there are things that we need to talk about, we just don't know how to open the conversations. Mm. So if we do it in a way that is not overt, but in a way that we know a lot of people are going to find that information, then we can start having that cultural change. Mm -hmm. And I find it hard in New Zealand because they still have the tall poppy syndrome. Of course, it's endemic. And people don't want to talk about things. Everything's kind of hush-hush behind doors. Um, we see that also in the medical uh, system here in New Zealand where we don't have prevention. We don't have physiatry. We don't have anything that's going to stop people from going off the deep end or having to have surgery. 
whereas we look in the States by no means is a model A, but they do have a massive amount of prevention, prevention research, prevention care, to do the education, to prevent people going off the deep end, prevent people getting metabolic disease, prevent people having cardiovascular surgery or joint replacement surgery because it's expensive. So I think part of it also has to be a re-look at healthcare and how are we positioning healthcare in this country where it's all about we fix when it's broken yeah. instead of let's prevent the breaking. Because yeah. if we were to prevent the breaking, then we would have the opportunity to have that education when we go to our GP or have the opportunity to have wellness clinics and know what's going on and be inspired by someone talking about things because it would be part of the norm. There's a lot of things that need to be changed, and as much as I keep pushing, it's so hard to invoke change. Mm. Just before I forget, I, one of the things I found fascinating from um, research on, on yourself, Stacey, was that and something I didn't know, that um, in a period, one of the hormones, is it progesterone? Progesterone? Mm -hmm. um, you can have more ligament tears and... Estrogen. Uh, soft est estrogen, yeah. is it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so if, if when, when that's kind of at its peak, and correct me if I'm wrong in saying this, but um, in your cycle, you're more susceptible to injuries. So that's the prevailing uh, theory. Um, and part of it comes from retrospectively looking at when an injury happened mm. and trying to understand where a woman was in her menstrual cycle. Yeah, yeah. As well as Petri dish uh, research right. and looking at how estrogen affects ligament tension. Yeah. But if we look at the whole body and we think about it from a biological perspective, yeah. the human body wouldn't be built to be susceptible to being killed. So if we have a surge of estrogen and a woman's being chased by an animal and she happens to step down wrong, we wouldn't want the body to you know, have an ACL tear and then get eaten because then that's the species is dead. Mm. Can't. So when we look at whole body and we look at the research around it, it's the training loads leading up to um, the menses phase or the period phase. And we know that training loads that are high in the week before the period starts are not absorbed very well because the body isn't very resilient to stress. Mm -hmm. We have a really um, triggering immune system, so we have more pro-inflammatory, which changes tissue and tissue function. So if we are to decrease the load in that period of time, then we don't have the predisposition to injury. And we also see that although estrogen makes ligaments more lax, we have other counter cytokines that invoke a faster proprioception to avoid tear. So this is the prevailing conversation is, oh, around ovulation or mid-follicular when estrogen starts to go up, women have a, a greater predisposition to ACL tears. Mm. But that, again, comes from the male lens of research and not really looking at what's leading up to that mm. and what are some of the biological influences that we have that can stop that tissue tension from changing. Sure. Okay, thank you for that. Sorry yeah. for the tangent. No, no. It was just something you said there about, you know, the health system fixing breakages. You know, again, it comes back to that awareness and understanding, doesn't it? Yeah. That you, you can do things differently and prevent yes. uh, injuries and ailments full stop if you've got the awareness yes and there are things like regenerative medicine like mm -hmm. which is very costly in this country but it avoids things like total joint replacement mm -hmm. which is very expensive as well yeah. um, 
So there are lots of things that are available, but they're not in the mindset because mm. overworked system, the system is all about fixing what's broken. It's not about, okay, let's have better quality of life for physicians and look at mm. more prevention to relieve the load on the surgeons, mm. relieve the load on the ER. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Awareness is, is key, I think. Why, after what I've, all I've learned from the research and from this conversation, I think that's the one thing that we need to put focus on is, is awareness. Because when I think about the difficult, some of the conversations I've had with male leaders about um, working with their teams and females in their teams and just not having the confidence to talk about, I mean, and again, is it appropriate to talk about if it's not being raised, you know, by that staff member? Yeah. It just it becomes a barrier. Whereas, if there's a lot more conversation, if, if it's not taboo anymore, and, we, and we're talking about it as a natural kind of conversation that this this is just how life is, we should talk about it um, like everyday conversation. Yeah. Then it wouldn't becomes that be a, beautiful. It would, wouldn't it? That'd be awesome. And it be, it be just yeah. so much life would be so much easier and better for yeah. everyone because yeah. we've got that difficult kind of standoff where even if we even if we think I might know what that is. I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to raise that conversation. I don't know what I should be doing and how I should be responding. What happens if that person doesn't even know that that's What's what happening? it is? And if I raise it, I'm going to be in the shit, yeah. you know, which is very quick and easy to do. Yeah. Um, always has been. And, and I think, you know, more so these days, I think men are afraid to raise certain subjects through fear of actually who am I to be raising this? Yep. Am I, you know... So there's all, all of that comes into it as well. Whereas I think, you know, so much more awareness would overcome some of these obstacles and, and help everybody. Yeah, that's why I try to get education out there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that, that's a nice segue into... Oh, yeah. um, you've obviously had a, a fantastic career so far, very successful, um, and, you know, um, renowned in your field, but you're probably beginning of your career really uh, you know <laughs> where to from here what's what do you want if you were to kind of zoom forward in time what, what would you like your legacy to be so there's two things to that personal I want my daughter and her friends not to experience all the shit that I've gone through and what my teammates have gone through I want their life to be easier and more equal um, so that becomes a, a huge driving force for the education component to NSOs and coaches and even their peers. Um, my daughter's very comfortable talking about stuff, but her friends aren't comfortable talking to their moms. So that, to me, is a worry. Like, their, her friends will ask her to ask me questions about periods and things. I was like, okay, we got to take a step back. Maybe I should have a mom's group and we can all talk about it so their daughters are comfortable. But then from like a more professional point of view, uh, ideally I would like to work with companies that have big voices. So you're looking at the Nikes, you're looking at Adidas, you're looking at the Gatorades and that kind of stuff um, and get rid of their marketing dollars and really get science behind it to work from the top down. So they're not only working through management for education around women in science and biomedical stuff, but it's filtering all the way down to their products. Um, and that's a pipe dream, but it's one that I'm going to keep pushing. Uh, and it, 
it doesn't have to be mean that's affecting the companies. It could be someone who's taken one of the courses or has had conversations and suddenly gets the right person to listen to them, and so they start making changes from within. But if we can get some of the bigger companies that, that have a loud voice in the sport area, because we see that what happens in sport can filter out to the general population. So if we work sport on out, and then also have conversations outward back in, I think we can really invoke a lot of change. Mm. Yeah. So what are you saying there is that you, you want to be able to influence that. You want to see that, whether it's you directly or indirectly. Yeah. That's, that's what you want to help bring yeah. about. I want those conversations to be had and have less... I want women not to feel so afraid of talking about things in the workplace with their coaches, with mm. their athletes. I just, like you were saying earlier, you would just want it to be normalized. Yeah. yeah. And you said that that's a bit of a pipe dream. Do you do yeah. you believe that statement or do you feel that that is actually achievable in the not too distant future? I don't think it's achievable in the not so different you distant know? future. There's too many cultural nuances that go with those conversations. So we have to look at breaking down cultural barriers as well as trying to um, break down the standard like male view of things. Um, like we look at Saudi Arabia and they're now looking at the view of we have to embrace tourism because we don't have as much money now in oil and gas. So they're having to rethink from a cultural standpoint, how are we going to embrace westernized tourism with our religious beliefs? So yes, they're now relaxing some of the rules, but from a cultural standpoint, it doesn't feel right for their women. So you have to break through those cultural barriers in order to embrace it. That's an extreme example. But when we're here, we have to look at things like, what is the Pacifica idea around menopause and menstrual cycle? And how they approach it and how that might come and filter out into every day and filter out into the workplace. How does a white woman like me, you know, approach menopause and menstrual cycle and talk about it? It's in my bubble, so I'm generally comfortable, but if I encounter someone who's not, it's still having to read that person to understand how I can approach that conversation. And that's a cultural barrier as well. So there's so many steps that have to be understood before we can have this big, huge conversation. So, so big questions. So, yeah. so how how does how does that change come about then? Because what you're saying there is it's almost a linear kind of step through. We need some cultural changes in order to be able to I think make changes about what we've been talking about today. Yeah, or running parallel. I think they're in okay. parallel, definitely, because we have, you know, if you look at a typical bell curve, you have early adopters, mm. then a whole bunch, and the late adopters. Mm. When we're talking about menstrual cycle, we're in the middle of the bell curve. We've had the early adopters. Now we're having more conversations of poverty or period poverty awareness and free menstrual products in the high schools and having open conversation around it. And then we have to have the late adopters. With menopause, we're still in the early adopter phase. And we need to push to get into the bell curve and then have those conversations. Along that early adoptive state, we're also seeing people who are explaining menopause in a non-westernized way. Like in Japanese culture, there's no word for hot flash. Why? Because the idea of getting old and hot flashes is revered. It's not afraid. 
So it's understanding that and having those conversations and westernized, and then people are like, my hot flashes are so bad, I can't sleep. Okay, well, now that we've addressed it, we can actually do things to implement it. You don't have to be held accountable from your symptoms to, like, destroy your life. If you acknowledge them, then we know that there are interventions to come into play. Mm -hmm. So it's the early adopters who are understanding that who are then getting that big tipping point to get into the middle of adulthood. Mm -hmm. So we're getting there. But... Yeah. Getting there, do you think that the, you know, like the the pace of change around some of these topics is, is is moving, is changing? If you think back to, you know, your earlier experiences yeah. at, at school, you know, I, I feel, and but that might be my middle-aged white man naive kind of view of the world that things are changing, um, and you know, I, I can't help but feel that maybe there's some exponential change going to come with it. You know, you sort of like you've said, the bell curve, right? Yeah. So we, you, you push through and then all of a sudden there's, there's, there's massive change. There's, it feels like to me that there's a lot of change happening yes. globally in a lot yes. of areas yes. across a lot of topics. Yes. Um, not necessarily, and again, that's another podcast, not necessarily, I don't believe, um, the kind of change that we actually really need to, to bring about actual positive change. There's, there's changing conversations, like we touched on earlier, I think. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about, let's like, say, mental health, for me, um, we, it's, it's no longer deemed to be, um, you know, problematic to talk about it. But actually, if you are open about it and talk about it, there's still a negative impact when you apply for a job or... You know, um, certain jobs. If you've if you've had any experience of mental health disorders or um, depression or anything like that, you you just you can't be considered. Yeah. Um, so there's still a stigma attached to that stuff. I don't think we're actually changing underneath. It's what generational needs to change. as well. It's yeah. Generational as it well. is. So part of that whole bell curve and movement, like I've seen it with menstrual cycle, it took a point where the people that were comfortable talking about it got to a point where they are old enough to have a bigger voice and talk about it. So this is what's happened in the past, like, four or five years, right? Mm. Um, because I think it started with the women's U.S. soccer team saying, hey, you know, after they world, won the World Cup, we tracked our menstrual cycle. And then it was, boom, in the global sports news. And that made it into general population. So it's just the age of the people who are talking about it. So when we look at menopause... Uh, the group of women who are in their 40s onward have always, regardless of where they are, as long you know, westernized, right? Um, grew up with it's taboo to talk about it. Like their moms didn't talk about it. Moms probably didn't even talk about periods. Mm. And so to be able to talk about it now is still very uncomfortable. Same with mental health. So we talk about going and getting therapy and trying to get help with it. People automatically assume that having a therapist is a negative thing, that you're going to be on the couch and you're going to be doing um, you know, retrograde conversations about your childhood and childhood trauma, which is not what it's about, but people still associate that. Mm -hmm. So now that we have more awareness around menopause, more awareness around mental health, and people going through opportunities to get help or to take control, then when those people get to their particular age where they can talk about it on a global scale, we're going to see that snowball effect. Yeah. It's a shame we have to wait. I know. Generational. I know. Uh, you know. The generational change. I know. You know, um, 
there's a lot of people who are going to go through a lot of shit yes. waiting for that change to happen. Yes. So we need to work out a way of trying to speed up that process, don't we? And break down some of those barriers. And I think, again, for me, it comes back to awareness absolutely is key, but then what? Yeah. You know, so what? We've got awareness. What are we going to do with it? Where are the resources to and help? We need to give, yeah, exactly. We need to give people the tools and resources in order to engage differently. Yeah. Because I think there are so many, so many benefits to engaging on these topics in more detail and more depth. Um, we've, we've just got to take a punt to realise it. But the fear is keeping us from, from doing it. From doing it, it yeah. The yeah. fringe. Yeah. The fringe group. Yeah. We need more fringe group people. Yeah, yeah. Stacey, I, I, I could talk about this, this stuff and, and a lot more all day with you. Uh, hopefully you've maybe seen that I, I'm really interested in it because of the questions I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> and my, uh, my brain's sort of working overtime. There's, all, there's a whole raft of questions that I've still, I've still got. But, um, look, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been a really interesting conversation. I, I really wish you all the best with your, I was going to say quest, it's not the right word, but your, your mission um, of, of trying to bring about that positive change in the areas that you're working in. And like you said, working with athletes, but then, you know, um, working out from that. Um, I, I wish you all the best with that. Thanks. Uh, every success. It. And I'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on, um, on what, what you do next. Yeah, and then let me know what I do next. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good thing, isn't it? You don't know what you're going to do next. I don't, yeah. Yeah, it'll, it'll pop up in front of you. And you'll yeah. You'll decide which way to go. But yeah. yeah. So thank you again for, for your time. I really appreciate yeah, it. No problems. Thanks for having me. Cheers. As you will hopefully know by now, if you've seen other episodes, this segment of the podcast is all about wisdom worth sharing from our guests who've been living a life that's a story worth retelling. At the end of every interview, I'll look back as part of the editing process and discover some of the gems that came out during the conversation and then I summarise them here. I really enjoyed this interview because I love learning. And listening to Stacey talk about her life, career and goals provided an opportunity for me to learn so much. And it didn't stop there, by the way, at the end of the interview. I've since started one of Stacey's courses on menopause. If you're just tuning into this uh, segment as a YouTube short or something, you may be wondering why I did that. But if you watch the whole episode... I think you'll understand why. For me, it's important for men to have a good understanding of this topic. Unless, of course, you'll never come into contact with any women, i.e. you don't have a mother, partner, daughter, or you don't work or interact with any women at all, in which case it probably would be less worthwhile for you. Otherwise, I think the more awareness we have of this natural part of every woman's life, the more able we are to understand, support, and work with those who are experiencing some of the many symptoms associated with perimenopause and menopause. As I spoke about in the interview, since I started increasing my own awareness, I've seen so many indications where this may be a factor with scenarios playing out in every workplace, all over the place. Women understanding themselves better is a big step in the right direction, but if men can be open to learning about this too, will create much better environments for women to thrive, which ultimately benefits everyone. Women leaving the workplace because they don't feel understood or that they no longer fit or they're not getting the opportunities they could and should to dominate in roles, as Stacey put it, is not good for anyone, 
including our organisations. Even with just a little more understanding, our workplaces could benefit significantly and women all over the world could be more empowered. I find it fascinating, actually, that so many women still don't understand the implications of menopause themselves. As Stacey alluded to, this could be due to all the historical views, opinions and advice on this topic being taboo still. But they've also maybe been predicated from a male's perspective, like so much of the health and fitness data that Stacey referred to in the interview. I would seriously advocate both women and men visiting Stacey's website, drstacysims.com, and watching her videos and considering doing some of her courses. Get in touch with her. She's making a huge difference, so why not be a part of that? Anyway, there was so much more to the interview than just talking about menopause, although that is a very important topic. So I'll talk about some of the other things that we covered with Stacey. What was clear from the very beginning of the interview was how good Stacey is at seeing the world, not just through her own lens, but through that of others. She related to us how she was a minority at her school and that moving around frequently around the world due to her father's career in the armed forces, she grew up as an outsider wherever she was. Even going back home to Indiana for university was like going back to the 1950s, she said. And whilst for some that could have been detrimental to learning and could have inhibited the development of interpersonal and maybe social skills, for Stacey it didn't. Instead, it provided her with an opportunity to learn, to learn about different cultures and to look at everything from an alternate view. That ability and willingness to consider different perspectives has not only stayed with Stacey throughout her adult life, as an attribute that most of us could probably benefit from having more of, it shaped who Stacey has become as a person and has also shaped her career. Like the characters that she idolised as a young girl, the likes of Princess Leah and Wonder Woman, who were able to break through hard situations, say what they meant and get pushed forward, Stacey has done likewise in her own career. She's been keen to delve into things, to deepen her understanding and to question things that didn't seem right, even when she's faced adversity in doing so. Like when she was at university, standing up to a lecturer who physically assaulted her when it was her word against everyone else's because they were all afraid to speak up. Or when she was at Stanford, being the scapegoat and being told her problem was she was a woman with a PhD who thought too much. Maybe people would have shied away from challenging such authority. But it's Stacey's willingness to overcome the fear that has enabled and empowered her to become a trailblazer in her field. And as a result, so many women around the world have been benefited from her insight, research and teaching. Imagine if she hadn't been willing to take that stand, put herself out there with different views and opinions to those of so-called experts in highly credible institutions who have never even thought to look at women's health from a woman's perspective. Female athletes all over the world would still be basing their health and fitness needs on data founded on five young males decades ago. Stacey said that her experiences over the years have taught her how hard she can push and hide her fear. Note that she didn't say eradicate the fear. It's still there. 
But this is how she's learned to be resilient whilst pushing for her goals as an athlete, in life in general, and in her own career. I love the phrase that Stacy used that we should all keep in mind whenever the fear raises its head and stops us from doing the things we need to, which essentially tells us where our focus should be. The idea of the outcome can supersede the fear. The idea of the outcome can supersede the fear. Hopefully, you've been able to take many insights away from this interview that you can apply to some aspect of your life, work, and legacy. Use it. Share it with others. As I always say, sharing is like teaching, and teaching helps us to retain what we've learned and commit to change, which is necessary if we are to enhance our own life's work. And maybe also don't forget to visit drstacysims.com and continue your learning there. I hope you're happy, safe, and successful in all that you do. And remember, live a life that's a story worth retelling. I'm Steve Worsley, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Life's Work, the podcast all about wisdom worth sharing.